Funerals are starting to go away. I don't know if you've noticed that or not. The Washington Post reported, death is a given, but not the time-honored rituals. An increasingly secular, nomadic, and casual America is shredding the rules about how to commemorate death. Somber, embalmed body funerals are for many families a relic. Uh, the numbers bared out too. Between uh, 2009 and 2019, the number of funeral homes in the United States shrunk by 1,500. Researchers at the University of Bath looked into this issue and they concluded a funeral service is sometimes neither wanted nor needed, and families of the deceased should be encouraged to reject the convention if it's unlikely to ease their grief. Now, something tells me that this is not a good trend. Ignoring the passing of members of our community and abandoning one of the few fundamental observances that every generation in every culture for thousands of years has done, well, that's not going to improve our society or our cultural well-being. The modern mind may not want to face grief or death, uh, but that doesn't make it go away. Death remains a reality and a constant presence. And we know why the book of Genesis explained it to us. God designed a cosmos uh, full of thriving life, and in short order, man traded that thriving life for thorns and death. The book here closes with two funerals, one that is extravagant on the page and one that's much more plain. But as our passage adjourns, we are left with the hope that death is not the end. There's still life ahead because God is not willing to let his creation be claimed permanently by sin. He intends to take it back. Verse 1 of chapter 50, then Joseph, leaning over his father's face, wept and kissed him. Uh, So in the previous verses, Jacob, his father, has just died. God had promised that Joseph would be there to close Jacob's eyes, and it was so, like all of God's promises. We see Joseph cry a lot in his uh, story, seven different times, actually, in his saga, But he wasn't defined by sorrow. A lot of bad things happened to Joseph. Uh, He got human trafficked. He was a slave. He was falsely accused, falsely imprisoned, hated by his brothers, left for dead, all these uh, terrible things. But he wasn't defined by sorrow. We, We see, when we see him speak, when we see him act, even through his tears, we see he's consistently hopeful in the Lord and that he trusts God and, and he knows that God is present and that he is accomplishing his good purposes in the lives of his people. Verse 2, he commanded his servants who were physicians to embalm his father, so they embalmed Israel. They took 40 days to complete this, for embalming takes that long, and the Egyptians mourned for him 70 days. So, This was not the normal process for the family of Abraham. A lot of times the commentators will point out, this isn't what, you know, Jews did. Well, we're hundreds and hundreds of years from the law and from the established sort of Jewish culture. Uh, But even among the family of Abraham, uh, young as it was, this wasn't the normal process. The question is, was Joseph more Egyptian than Hebrew at this point? Had he sort of culturally assimilated into the nation he had lived in for so long? And the truth is, he spent 93 of his 110 years in Egypt. He only spent 17 years in Canaan with his uh, mom and dad and his brothers. There are some who accuse him of trying to live and operate simultaneously in both cultures, in both worlds, and and he is by some accused of being sort of unfaithful to both the Egyptian culture and the Abrahamic culture. 
but that's really not the portrait that Genesis gives us. It's certainly not in the end. Uh, he's presented as a, a man who really is focused on and believing in the work that God is going to do, not just in general, but through this family uh, of Israel. There is an interesting hint here in verse 2 about what he might have been thinking. Joseph commanded his physicians to embalm his father, not the mortuary priests who are normally involved in this ritual process. And so it seems as though Joseph is uh, using what leverage he has to separate uh, this process from the Egyptian religious aspect. Uh, The embalming was meant to be more practical, it seems. Because the Egyptians were deep into death ritual, maybe more than any of the other cultures of the time or in all of human history. Of course, mummification is a real thing. That's why we have mummy movies, right? But that came from a real, real place. They really did mummify uh, people. Like so many things in a human experience, the embalming process uh, was kind of dependent on how wealthy you were. It was, you know, kind of divided among the classes. The, the embalming process originated in the belief that the ghostly double of the person might at any time return to take possession of the body, hence the mummy, right? Depending on how much money you had and how much you were willing to pay, you would get more embalming done or less. The poor, they would maybe just be washed and dried in the sun, just human jerky for everybody. Uh, I'm sorry, they, they didn't eat them. The Egyptians did some weird stuff, but as far as I know, they didn't eat the dead. So uh, you pay a little more money, you might be packed in salt after being dried in the sun. You go all the way up to the Cadillac option, right? If you want to go, go in style into the afterlife, uh, you do the full embalming process. Your brain and internal organs would be removed and replaced with spices. Your body would be soaked in potassium nitrate, wrapped in linen, dipped in resin. Ooh, right? And that's why that stuff is so preserved so well, because resin is pretty sticky. Now, Joseph had promised his father that he would take him back to Canaan and bury him in the cave that was owned by the family. But Joseph also knew that the death of the prime minister's father would be a big deal politically. And indeed, it it was. We'll see that the whole community, the whole nation actually goes into mourning, right? More than just the flags being at half staff. uh, I mean, everybody goes into mourning because, because Joseph was such an amazing figure, right? And the presence of this family had had saved the entire nation and the nations around them. And so Joseph is a big deal. His father is a big deal. And so his death is a big deal. Plus, even though Joseph is maybe the most powerful administrative person in the entire world at the time, he was still a servant of the Pharaoh. And the servant of the Pharaoh couldn't just leave the country whenever they wanted to, right? And so there would be a significant amount of time between Jacob's death and the actual burial, including having to take his body from here to there. And so the body would need to be preserved uh, on a practical level. Otherwise, it would get a little unpleasant for everyone. David Livingston, maybe you've heard of his name. He was a pioneer missionary to Africa of yesteryear. Uh, He was famously... Uh, His body was famously preserved and sent back to England, uh, shipped from Africa to Britain. His body was packed in salt, salt, dried in the sun, wrapped in calico and bark. They doused his face with brandy to preserve his features. 
His remains were sealed with tar before then being walked a thousand miles to an English outpost and put on a ship to set sail. Uh, They cut out his heart first and buried it uh, in Africa because they said this man wouldn't want his heart to leave Africa. That's kind of a nice, nice touch to that story. All of chapter 50 that we're reading here, all of it, stands in stark contrast to Genesis 1 and 2. If you want to see the, the, as far apart uh, as you can get in the Bible, it's Genesis 1 and 2 and Genesis 50, right? Look at what the earth has come to. Look at what's happening in God's creation, which started so gloriously, which started so perfectly. Everything that we saw was good and right and thriving and growing. Look at what sin does. It kills. It puts people in the ground. From dust you came, from, to dust you're going to return. Uh, And that's brought home here at the end of the book. And there's a tragic irony here in the opening verses. Joseph gives Jacob's body to the physicians. The word there is healers. Why did humanity need healers? We needed healers because we were broken by sin and ruined by it. Of course, now that they had healers, now that they had physicians, now that they had doctors, that's helpful. But what help are they once a man is dead? Well, they're not any help. All they can do is help your remains not decay quite as fast. Mankind, you know, as we've seen throughout this book and experience day by day in our own personal lives, mankind is so quick to proliferate sin, and yet we are so powerless against its effects. And, and, and we see how sin has ravaged the universe. It ravages lives and relationships and, and communities and nations and all of these things. And yet still, humankind is so given over to generating sin, proliferating sin, celebrating it, running towards it, when all it does is destroy, all it does is kill and bind and do all of these terrible things that we've been reading about in passage after passage in the book of Genesis. Meanwhile, God, who made everything perfect at the beginning, he has now been constantly busying himself with dealing with sin for us on our behalf. Uh, Most of you are busy people, you know, your schedule is filled up with lots of things that are important, lots of things that you feel passion about, dedication toward. I don't think hardly any of us sit around and think, what's an extra chore I can do for someone who doesn't appreciate me today, (laughs) right? How can I fill my day? Let me find, who, who hates me? Let me fill my day And not just fill my day, I'm going to put all of my passion and all of my effort and all of my powers into filling my my time. God, of course, is outside of time, but let's put ourselves into this position. I'm going to fill my day every day, and I'm not going to go to sleep, and I'm not going to rest, and I'm just going to do everything that I can do for people who hate me. I'm going to do chores for them, and I'm going to reach out to them. I'm going to talk to them again about how they love me, and they're going to spit at me, and they're going to curse me, and they're going to try to harm me. They're going to tell their neighbors how bad of a person I am, how everything that I do, everything you know, that's bad about their life is my fault. Meanwhile, I spend every day, day and night, trying to fix what's wrong in their life. Nobody does that. Nobody does that. We get to Thanksgiving time and we're like, oh, do I even have to see that, you know, that extended family member? Oh, do I have to talk to them for an hour at Thanksgiving? This is too much, right? And the Lord God who made creation perfect 
who did all of the things that we've seen him do, he, he is constantly busying himself with dealing with the effects of sin for us, for working out his eternal plan for redemption so that he can take back what we have destroyed. He says, okay, here's what you've done. Here's how you've brought death into my cosmos that I created. I'll become your great physician. You're going to develop your own healers, your own physicians. They can't do very much. They do little by little. Because of my grace, I'm going to give them ingenuity, and I'm going to show you how to harness chemicals and plants and all these things, and I'm going to allow you to fight back against the, the, uh, f- the forces and the effects of sin, even among those physicians who don't believe in me, who don't care about me, who blaspheme me. But meanwhile, on top of all of that, I'm going to become your great physician. And I'm going to solve the problem ultimately and permanently once and for all. We read in Isaiah 19, then they will turn to the Lord and he will be receptive to their prayers and heal them. Right? So that's what God is doing. And he could be doing anything he wants to do. Right? God is not obligated to fix our problem. Now, he's obligated himself because he's promised and he loves us and he says, hey, I have entered into a covenantal love with you. He's obligated himself, but let's pause. You don't have to fill your schedule doing things for people who hate you and so you don't, right? God, to the magnificently eternal degree, does not owe us anything and yet he says, I will, I will faithfully attach myself to you. I will busy myself to roll back the effects of sin in the world that you, humanity, have brought into it. And so he wants to do this healing. He has the plan. He has the power. He has promised to roll back sin, to clear away our guilt, to defeat death, to restore us to immortality if we will believe in him and receive the free gift of his salvation. And so uh, if we will turn to the Lord, he's willing to do all of that. Verse 4, when the days of mourning were over, Joseph said to Pharaoh's household, if I found favor with you, please tell Pharaoh that my father made me take an oath saying, I'm about to die. You must bury me there in the tomb that I made for myself in the land of Canaan. Now let me go and bury my father, then I will return. It's hard to get a feel for Joseph's relationship with Pharaoh. He seems really tentative when it comes to requesting things of him. But at one point he says, hey, I'm like a father to Pharaoh. Clearly Joseph is a you know, almost deified celebrity in the nation of Egypt because he literally saved all their lives. And so he has a lot of political capital, but we see he's also hesitant at times like this. Joseph didn't even ask Pharaoh personally. We're told he uses members of the household as a go-between. And obviously he and Pharaoh had a very close working relationship, so it's kind of interesting. Now, it could be that he was ceremonially unclean because he had come into contact with a dead body. The, you know, courts of Pharaoh had rules about those sorts of things. Or it could be that as he was grieving for his father, he had not shaved his head and his face, and he couldn't be in Pharaoh's presence. That's possible, too. He's really careful in the way he brings this request. But it is a big ask, a huge ask, because if Pharaoh... Uh, were, were uh, of the untrusting persuasion, if he was more paranoid, he might think that his prime minister, the most important person in his government, is going to defect to Canaan. And they know that Joseph is a Hebrew and that he's not an Egyptian by birth. And so Joseph assures him, he's like, hey, I'm going to come back, but I want to go and do this and fulfill my vow. Verse 6, so Pharaoh said, go and bury your father in keeping with your oath. 
For his part, Pharaoh is trusting and gracious and understanding. He not only allows Joseph to go, we'll see that the whole affair becomes a state-sponsored funeral with Pharaoh's approval. The whole nation was in mourning. Everything was officially done from, you know, we would say from coast to coast. The 70 days they observed for Jacob was just two days shy of what Egyptians would normally do for their king. Normally, they would mourn for 72 days for a king. They're mourning 70 days for Jacob. And it's just a great testimony of the fact that the presence of God's people made a huge difference in this society. This is not a society friendly to the God of heaven. They didn't believe in him. They weren't looking for the truth. They thought they had it all figured out. Um, They weren't as hostile as they were going to become in the book of Exodus, but the presence of God's people made a big difference in this society. It it moved the needle when Jacob died, and, 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 and he had left his mark because of the grace of God. Now, here's what's important. So then we think, okay, well, we're in a community, and so what do we need to do? We need to create a plan to to infiltrate Hanford and Kings County, and we'll do X, Y, and Z, and then we'll make a difference. Joseph and Jacob and his family, they didn't come to Egypt with a plan to make a difference. They didn't come with a strategy to make a difference. They just didn't. Joseph didn't come on purpose. He was sold there as a slave, right? And he just said, hey, here's probably what you should do so you don't all starve to death. He didn't have a strategy in the sense that oftentimes, you know, Christian churches try to develop strategies uh, for their community. Instead, they just walked by faith and were led by the Lord. And because of that, the Lord was able to do what he wanted to do through this family. And, and what he wanted to do, as he said from, from the beginning with Abraham, he said, I want you to be a blessing to the nations. Through you, all the peoples are going to be blessed in all sorts of different ways. Ultimately, through the coming of the Messiah, through this line, through this family. But along the way, I want you to be a blessing uh, and, and not a cursing. And so go where I'm scattering you and walk by faith. And as you walk by faith, I'm able to do all kinds of things that you could not predict or prepare for or anticipate without me. Verse 7, and Joseph went to bury his father and all Pharaoh's servants, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt with him, along with all Joseph's family, his brothers, his father's family. Only their dependents, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. Horses and chariots went up. It was a very impressive procession. <laughs> Thanks, Moses. <laughs> so this is a huge deal. Uh, maybe you are um, old enough to have seen, you know, video of, or maybe you saw it televised, the funeral procession for JFK. It's a huge deal, right, where all of these heads of states from all over the world came to walk behind uh, the coffin. Or we think of, you know, funerals for Princess Di or some of the ex-presidents, those sorts of things. This is a big deal. And it was a very long trip, right? This isn't just walking up the, you know, the mall in Washington, D.C. I mean, they're going out of country on foot and horseback and by wagon. In fact, it's safe to say that the Egyptians had totally hijacked this funeral. They just did. You've got palace officials, cultural leaders, the military is there. Everybody's decked out in all of their formal regalia. All the who's who of the kingdom is there. As one commentator put it, there were no no no-shows. Everybody was there. All the elders, all the members, all the people, right? And there, kind of tossed in the middle, were a bunch of motley, you know, rough-and-tumble-looking Hebrew guys. And some of the scholars point out just how strange this would have looked. You would have had all the Egyptians, like, decked out in their makeup and their bald heads and their white linen. 
and then you had soldiers and they've got all of their stuff. Everything's gleaming and gold and all this stuff. And then you have, a, a, you know, these Hebrew shepherds, you know, we're like wearing our, <laughs> they got their beards and stuff like that. Uh, you know, it just would have been, it would have been a strange sight, but it also would have been a very strange feeling for the sons of Jacob. Be like, what, what, what's going on here? What do these people have to do with what we're doing here? But, and so Egypt sort of hijacks this, this funeral procession. Verse 10, when they reached the threshing floor of Atad, which is across the Jordan, they lamented and wept loudly. And Joseph mourned seven days for his father. When the Canaanite inhabitants of the land saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, well, this is a solemn mourning on the part of the Egyptians. Therefore, the place is named Abel Mizraim. It's across the Jordan. The whole scene was so Egyptian that the local Canaanites mistook who was being lamented over. They thought, well, the Egyptians are here to have an Egyptian funeral. According to ancient custom, the Egyptian portion of the entourage probably took leave of the body here at this threshing floor amid an elaborate set of ceremonies that would include divine mourners, incantations of protection for the deceased, female lamenters, ritual dancers, followed by a full-scale banquet, right? That's the kind of stuff that they did. Meanwhile, the much smaller group of Hebrews are just kind of waiting for all of that to be done so that they can do their custom together and be like, are you done? Oh, another dance, another dance for the dead. Okay, I guess we'll hang out. So this just would have been a very, this is a real thing that happened. These are real people. Honestly, without getting too touchy, how would you feel if you had a, a funeral for your family member and then a huge group from a different religion came and said, we're in charge now, and they started doing all kinds of weird, their religion stuff. You'd be like, this is weird. This is so weird. And they're like, hang on, we have to have some ladies come and like, for a while. And now this dude, what's that dude with the headdress? Well, he's coming because he's going to do incantations for the body. And you're like, man, what is going on? And the whole time you're waiting, you're like, I'm trying to just, I'm trying to do my duty to my dad. I'm trying to get him buried the way he's supposed to be buried. All this mumbo jumbo going on. Like, this would have been such a strange experience for the family of faith. Uh, Verse 12. So Jacob's sons did for him what they had commanded them. They carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave at Machpelah in the field near Mamre, which Abraham had purchased as burial property from Ephron the Hethite. Generally, scholars believe that the family left the Egyptian crowd behind, as I said, and then they, they went and, and did the interring there. This scene continues the pattern in Genesis of strained or estranged sons coming together for funerals, right? Isaac and Ishmael buried Abraham. Jacob and Esau buried Isaac. These brothers are a little more reconciled, but we see there's, we'll see in a minute there's still a lot of strain. There's still a lot of hard feelings. And so uh, it's interesting to see... This is how important it was to them. I mean, Isaac and Ishmael coming together to bury Abraham, that's a hard scene. But they realize, hey, okay, today is not about me. This is about this important important commemoration that we're having. We are burying this person and this matters, right? America is the land of individuality. And even more so in the wake of COVID when our society said, not only should you not go to things like funerals, we're going to keep you from doing funerals. You can't go to weddings. You can't go to funerals. We're shutting all of that down, which accelerates the trend that America was already heading down by. Who even cares about things like funerals? Uh, 
we are the land of individuals, but we need to keep it unity and community close to heart. We're not just Americans. We are Christians. We are members of the body of Christ. And that is a body that is not meant to be dismembered. It is meant to be knit together and growing together. And that we are to be mindful of the other parts of the body, right? We're meant to work together. The New Testament says to strengthen weak knees and tired hands. We're supposed to watch out for each other and help restore one another and help, um, you know, guide and warn one another and, 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 and give advice to one another. And, and we're supposed to celebrate with each other and weep with each other. And so don't withdraw into, into isolation. Don't withdraw into individuality. It's what our culture celebrates right now. We do not need to do that. In fact, we're supposed to do the opposite and unify with our spiritual community even when there's tension to deal with. That doesn't mean that there's never going to be tension or difficulty. These guys had difficulties they had to work through. But we need to not flow with culture into isolation and individualism. We need to be people who are unified biblically. Verse 14 says, After Joseph buried his father, he returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone with him to bury his father. So why return when God wanted this family in Canaan? Well, we know that the Lord was doing a lot. He wasn't only working in the lives of this family and no one else. Uh, He was also dealing with other people like the Amorites who lived in Canaan. He was giving them time to repent and to turn to him. He said in Genesis 15 to Abraham, he said, hey, listen, the iniquity of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure, and my long suffering is going to wait. It's going to wait for four more generations, and yeah, your your descendants are going to be enslaved while that happens, but I'm waiting because I'm a God of mercy. I'm a God of grace. I'm a God who hopes that, that, that guilty sinners will realize they're guilty and will turn to me and receive my salvation and receive my covering and, 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 and receive life instead of death. And so uh, he was waiting. Sadly, we find that the Canaanites, the Amorites, they chose sin and judgment instead of repentance and grace. Verse 15, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said to one another, If Joseph is holding a grudge against us, he will certainly repay us for all the suffering we caused him. If he has a grudge. Okay, well, did Joseph have a grudge? They had no reason to think so. They really didn't. This is just, uh, well, this is just a a sad day. This was a totally unfair notion and opinion that they were allowing to come to the surface. Joseph had not only promised to help them, He spent 17 years taking care of them. 17 years. That's a long time to wait for your trap to spring, right? Uh, He had set them up in the best part of the land. He extended every ounce of grace he could to them. He had wept with them and embraced them and provided all they needed to live and thrive in the midst of the worst famine in the world's history. He had already explained to them back in chapter 45, he's like, hey, I'm here to save God has put me into this position to preserve life, so don't worry about it. But the brother's guilt of what they had done gnawed on. He couldn't really forgive them, could he? That's what they were thinking. They'd wake up and they'd see him. They'd see his power and they'd see his ability. They'd see, you know, the, the magnificence of who he was in the land of Egypt. And they, I, but he couldn't really forgive us. What they had done was too awful, and so they hatch a plan. Verse 16. 
So they sent this message to Joseph. Before he died, your father gave a command. Say this to Joseph. Please forgive your brother's transgression and their sin, the suffering they caused you. Therefore, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when their message came to him. In many ways, I feel like we're back where we started. Genesis has covered thousands of years of history. It has revealed an astounding amount of God's power and operations, His victories in grace, revelation of all sorts of things about Him. There's been a great deal of progress in the Lord's redemptive plan. A clear choice has developed between believing God and following Him or going the way of the world. But after all this time, after all these chapters, we're right back to Genesis 3, aren't we? Human beings crushed by guilt, trying desperately to parlay their way into forgiveness they know they don't deserve. The brothers are sowing themselves some fig leaves here. That's all they're doing. Sowing fig leaves to try to cover a guilt that they recognize in their own lives. They send this message, which was almost assuredly a lie. Jacob didn't say this. Hoping to get mercy from Joseph. They hide in the shadows, just like Adam and Eve hid from the presence of the Lord because they're afraid. And what happens? It broke Joseph's heart. He knew Jacob didn't really say this because he was the one that was there when Jacob gave his last will and testament, right? Joseph was the one who was in charge. Joseph was the one where Jacob was like, come on over, I need to tell you a bunch of stuff. And now let me say it all in front of everybody here, right? And so this was a made-up thing. More importantly, Joseph had already forgiven them. He had already done the work to reconcile them. He had already redeemed them and rescued them. The only thing that was stopping the brothers from receiving all the grace and all the mercy and all the freedom that they wanted from their guilt was their own unbelief. Joseph wasn't withholding anything from them. Joseph wasn't saying, we'll see. You know, if you guys, if you guys maintain your relationship with me, then I'll keep giving forgiveness to you. If you prove you're worthy of grace, I'll keep giving you grace. Grace is going to be doled out in rations, you know, once a year to you if I think you're worth it. None of that was the case. It wasn't that Joseph was withholding. It was that they didn't believe he would forgive them. And this is exactly the problem today. It's a problem our own hearts struggle with sometimes, right? God does not have to be convinced or cajoled to forgive you of your sin. He doesn't have to be bargained with to pay the debt you owe. He has already paid the price for your sin. He has already cleared the debt. He says, it's done. It's finished. Do you want your debt cleared? I paid for it. I'm ready right now to push the button to install all of my righteousness into your account because I already took all of the debt of your sin into my account and we cleared it on the cross. It's gone. And we're like, oh, I don't know. We might have to convince God to show me grace. I might have to convince God to forgive me. The only barrier is your heart and my heart. That's the only barrier between God's grace and us. Will you believe that God has forgiven you and then embrace him and trust him? That's the question. The brothers, out of fear, tried to obligate Joseph into not taking revenge on them, right? See, notice the difference. They didn't really come and say, we just need grace. They had already received that. Joseph had already shown it to them. They're trying to obligate him into not taking revenge. Meanwhile, Joseph is saying, I forgive you because of my hesed love for you. Not because you deserve it or not because, you know, I think it's going to benefit me in some ways. because I love you. He says, I don't have to be restrained. I just want to be embraced by you. That's what I desire. 
Verse 18, his brothers also came and bowed down before him and said, we are your slaves. Man, poor Joseph has to be thinking, what do I have to do to show these guys I love them and that I'll provide for them and that I've reconciled them to myself? The truth is they weren't slaves. They were brothers. Joseph recognized them as family, not foes. As one commentator points out, Joseph could have enslaved them maybe back when he was enslaving the rest of Egypt for Pharaoh. But he specifically carved them out. He says, no, not you guys. You won't be enslaved to Pharaoh because you're my family. You're my brothers. I've got a special plan of grace for you. You don't deserve it. It's all about my generosity. It's all about my love. It's all about my faithfulness to you despite what you deserve. You're not my slaves, you're my brothers. What a sad scene, especially when we remember the dream Joseph had close to a century before where the brothers came to bow down before him. Remember, back then it was a contentious thing. If you would have told Joseph how it was actually gonna play out here, I assure you he would have said, oh, I don't want that. That's not what I wanted. It's possible that as a teenager, he had been taunting his brothers with the dream or maybe boasting in it. We don't know. Some people think he was and some don't. He certainly wasn't interested in holding this kind of position over them now. It can be so hard for us to believe that God actually loves us, that he actually wants to shower his grace on us, but it's true. He's done it. He's made it plain. How many times does the Lord have to say it and prove it and repeat it? He loves you. Make Psalm 119, 132 your prayer along with the psalmist. Here's what the psalmist said to the Lord, turn to me and be gracious to me as is your practice toward those who love your name. He wasn't convincing God. He was reminding himself and inviting God to do what God wants to do because that's his practice. Let's not grieve our savior, our king by failing to believe in his goodness, his forgiveness and his grace. Even for us. Yes, even for us. Verse 19, but Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. Therefore, don't be afraid. I'll take care of you and your children. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Even though Joseph is the one with the broken heart, he still takes the time to comfort his fearful brothers. He's giving them the there, there. He's the one that's offended. He's the one who, who, who needs comfort in a sense. It reminds us of Jesus' tender compassion in the hours before and during his crucifixion, how much he's working to show tenderness and compassion and help at the Last Supper and in the, uh, it, you know, on the Mount of Gethsemane and on the, the whole time, he's like, okay, hang on, hang on, let me get a breath here on the cross so I can say something nice to this person over here. And, and it's an amazing thing. Here, Joseph delivers one of the most famous lines in Genesis, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. Some extrapolate from that, that God causes every occurrence in history on purpose, that there are no rogue molecules, everything that happens because he moved the chess piece on the board and caused it to happen. That is not the teaching of Genesis or any other book of the Bible. Instead, what we've seen over all of these chapters is that God is so powerful that he is able to accomplish his seemingly impossible gracious purposes, even though men are actively rebelling against him. What Genesis shows us is that God is able to clean the mess of sin no matter how bad of a stain it is. His providence cannot be overwhelmed or subverted by our awfulness, but we cannot jump from there to saying God caused these men to do this evil thing. To do so would mean that God is the author of evil, that he generates wickedness or sin, and that is blasphemy. The Bible reveals that God's will will be done 
And that man is a being with a freed will that God has given us. Despite our wickedness and our rebellion, God still accomplishes his will. And as he does, he invites us to join with him if we are willing, because to not join with him means to resist him. And you cannot resist God and, and win a victory. He is... Uh, he, has, he wins every battle, right? <laughs> you can't beat God. So if you can't beat him, join him, right? Joseph spoke kindly to them. The Hebrew literally means he spoke to their heart. And instead of saying, okay, listen, guys, this obviously isn't working out. You still don't trust me. You still don't believe in me. I'm not gonna take revenge on you, but why don't we just go our separate ways and call it even? That's what I would have done. Instead, Joseph doubles down on grace. He says, I'm going to take care of you and I'm going to take care of your kids. Let me show you how much I love you. Let me show you how gracious I am. And that's a taste of God's grace in a tiny droplet of this story. Verse 22, Joseph and his father's family remained in Egypt. Joseph lived 110 years. He saw Ephraim's sons to the third generation. The sons of Manasseh's son, Machir, were recognized by Joseph. It's interesting. Joseph never had any face-to-face talks with God. Not the way Abraham or Isaac or Jacob did. Even Hagar had a face-to-face talk with God, not Joseph. And yet, what do we see? Joseph knew God in a life-changing way, in a world-changing way. When he speaks, Joseph doesn't say a lot in his story, but when he speaks, what's he doing? He's constantly telling telling people, this is what God is like. This is what God is doing. This is how I know uh, that God is with me. Let me tell you about the character and nature of God. Let me explain to you the situation we find ourselves in based off of the perspective God has from it. He knew God, and we can know God too, even though we don't see him face to face, even though we don't have theophanies. You don't have to be Abraham to be the friend of God. You, Joseph also was the friend of God. In fact, in some ways, he understood more of God's character and nature than Abraham did, at least on the page. And we can trust the Lord through all circumstances just as Joseph did. Verse 24, Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will certainly come to your aid and bring you up from this land to the land he swore to give to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. So Joseph made the sons of Israel take an oath. When God comes to your aid, you are to carry my bones up from here. Joseph died at the age of 110. They embalmed him and placed him in a coffin in Egypt. Verse 24 doesn't mean that he was the first of his brothers to die necessarily. It's speaking in a general sense. Sometimes people ask that. Joseph leaves the world full of faith. So much faith that he'd probably had to pull some strings to not have the Egyptians do what they would have done with his body after he died, right? And he was embalmed. He was put in a sarcophagus, but he said, you're, you're going to save me for Canaan. You're not burying me under a pyramid. You're not putting me in some temple and concreted up where I can't be brought out. I, I want to be mobile in my sarcophagus. Uh, imagine a sitting president. I mean, it's just hard for us, but imagine a sitting president dying in office and saying on his deathbed, and you're not giving me a state funeral. I got my own plans. My family's going to take me to a little plot that we have. Now, it's possible there was a state funeral for Joseph, but Genesis doesn't want us to end with that image, does it? Instead, it ends with God's people waiting for what's next. What's next? What's the Lord going to do? It ends with, with God's people knowing that God wasn't done, that he had been coming to man's aid since Genesis 3, and he was going to keep coming to their aid, and he's going to keep coming to our aid until the work of redemption is complete. 
Joseph knew it, and he wanted to be a part of it in whatever way he could. Don't leave me in a temple. Don't leave me in a, in a pyramid. Get me to the promised land. I'll wait 400 years. My bones will rot for a while, but I want to go. I want to go and be there where the Lord wants us to be. And so the book closes with all of us waiting. When are they going to get back? When was God going to finish his mission of coming to our aid? When will things be back the way they started? Genesis opened in Eden. We're way outside of Eden now, right? One of the last places mentioned there in this chapter is the threshing floor of Etad, which can be translated the threshing floor of the bramble. What a difference, right? What such a wide gulf between what could have been, what, where we started, and what we human beings settled for because of sin. Man sure had made a mess of things. That's what we've seen in this book. From sin came thorns and sweat and sorrow and death and bloodshed and quarreling and famines and floods and hatred and anxiety and paranoia, every other terrible thing. It was all the opposite of what God wanted and offered. But even after trading Eden for brambles, even after mankind over and over in egregious ways thumbed their nose at God, the Lord still offers rescue. He still offers redemption. He still holds out everlasting life and the hope of glory to anyone who will go his way, anyone who will believe on him and trust his word and repent of their sin and, and follow his leading. Now, because of sin, we're waiting, right? We're at the end of Genesis in a sense. There's a lifelong wait for us. And there's sorrows along the way and difficulties along the way and brambles we got to deal with. But in the end, there's going to be life the way it was meant to be. Because in the end, God's children, God's family is going to be fully restored, fully free, in full communion with the Lord, our maker, our father, our savior, our friend. And when the chapters of our mortal lives close, the next book is open, and it's the Lamb's book of life. And that story will never end. And in those pages, we will experience a new beginning of the life God has always wanted for us, a perfect life of everlasting glory one that will never end.